0: Journey this morning, I get the privilege to get to introduce our teacher to you. He's a very good friend of mine. About a year and a half ago, Cody moved up to, up to here from Georgia. So he's, I think your, your blood's thick now and you're handling the cold and so. everything. It's yeah. been awesome. Uh, when I first hung out with Cody, he was just one of those guys that uh, within about five or 10 minutes, you just think this, this guy's gonna be a good friend of mine and that is actually the case. It's been really fun to get to know him over this last year and a half. He came here to Bozeman uh, because he wanted to be a part of building God's kingdom here in the valley and right now he and Daniel Harttime. Who was just playing on the keys there They're planting a church in the north side of Belgrade called The Table And uh, we've just got a lot of reasons that we love The Table The things that they're trying to do to reach out and invest in the Belgrade community is uh, just fantastic But we also love even just kind of the unique format that they have When they get together on a Sunday morning, they have a meal together They meet around tables and then even while they're still around tables, they have a worship and teaching time. And then when the teaching time is over, they have the opportunity to engage around the teaching uh, as a community. And so you've probably heard us around here talk about how we want to move our church in a similar direction, move from rows to circles. Well, they just started with circles just right at the beginning. They're not even going to mess around with rows, so they're, they're, they're way ahead of the game. And one th- fun thing as well is over this last Year, Uh, I don't know if you know this or not But uh, as we get ready to uh, teach the scriptures We have a group of us that we call a preaching collective Some men and women around our church That we gather uh, about a week and a half Before the message is preached And we engage in the text together And and help each other and think about insights And Cody's been a part of that with us And it's just been fantastic to get to know him In that environment as well Let's give a warm Journey Church welcome to Cody Whittington
1: Thank you, Bob. Thanks, Journey, for having me this morning, even though none of you knew I was going to be here. Thanks anyway. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, as Bob mentioned, I, I, I teach at a church down the road, and, and one of the cool things that uh, that we're experiencing at the table is learning more about who we are. We're forming organically, trying to figure out what's important. And what I wanted to do this morning is share with you something that we are that we are having conversations at the table about and that's the that's the topic of being presence and or being present and practicing presence as a community specifically becoming present within a caring community That's one of the priorities and one of the practices of the table that we're trying to facilitate around the tables as we have meals together and engage around conversations at the tables. It's it's just a very interesting dynamic, and it's challenging, and it's exciting, it's fun, and it's just really cool to see how that's taking place. So I wanted to share that with you as a priority this morning, presence, and what it means to become a caring community. So with that, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, we're going to be in the story of the Good Samaritan, what I'm going to call the true neighbor. And I know it is a familiar text. My hope is that our familiarity with it does not create any indifference. My prayer is that we can look at it with a, sense of, with a set of fresh eyes. And as you turn there, once you get there, I'd like to point your attention to the screen as I want to share with you the graphic for this morning, which is a painting by Vincent Van Gogh. How many of you have seen this before, this painting? Two, three, excellent, great, um, perfect. So I know you didn 't come here for an art history lesson, but you're going to get one anyway. Um, this, is a, this is a really remarkable painting, and I love the story of Vincent van Gogh, and the story behind this painting is pretty pretty incredible. You see he didn't this is not an original painting of his. this is a, 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 his rendition of a former artist's painting, and he painted this towards the end of his life just shortly before he died. This is one of his last uh, real intense paintings. And what's interesting about this is it does capture a big story of his life. Art historians tell us this. And what a lot of people don't realize is that before he became an artist, he was a missionary pastor. His dad was a pastor and he felt called into the ministry when he, was, when he was in his early mid to early 20s. And this church supported him financially. They sent him resources. They sent him money. But he went to this community that was in poverty. And the main trade there was coal miners. And, and basically, when he would receive his resources, he would just hand his resources away. He would give his money away. He'd give his clothes away. He would give his food away just to make sure he had enough just to get by, but then surrender the rest to the community. He would even draw portraits of families so that they would have something to to treasure as a family in in, in poverty. Now the church, they didn't like this for some reason. They said it was too undignified. That pastor should not be living that way. That's too undignified. So they cut off his stipend. They stopped supporting him and they left him there kind of high and dry. And he felt abandoned, rejected, left on the side of the road sort of. He knows what it's like. If you see in in the distance, you can see two people walking away in the distance. He knows what it's like to be passed by by the people of God. And towards the end of his life, he found himself in an asylum. He had checked himself into the asylum because he was just a really challenged and troubled mind, a lot of the things he had gone through in life. And art historians tell us that during this season of his life, he really did feel like the man left side, half dead, on the road, forgotten, rejected, rebuked by family, by friends. One of his main issues is that he never had a caring community, a consistent caring community. He had one brother that he was close with, but even that relationship was strained. And what art historians tell us, if you look closely at the the good Samaritan, the one who's lifting the guy up, you can see he's got red hair and a red beard. Well, that looks like a little bit like Van Gogh. So what they say is that they think what he was doing was he was painting himself into the story of who he really wanted to be. Who he really wanted to be. I'd like us to do the same this morning. I'd like us to paint ourselves into the story of the good Samaritan. (laughs) and figure out with whom do you identify? Are you a person who is caring for others? Are you a person who is being cared for by others? Or are we simply the people who are just carrying along, not giving too much thought to what's happening around us? So with that, let's go ahead and jump into Luke 10. We're gonna read verses 25 through 29 and then we'll get started. 25 through 29, it says, "'One day, an expert in the religious law "'stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, "'Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?' Jesus replied, Well, what does the law of Moses say, and how do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus said. He's got the right answer. Maybe the wrong heart, though. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We ask that as your word is open, let our hearts and minds and ears be open to what you want to say. Help us be attentive to you. Help us be attentive to one another. Help us learn how to create and cultivate a sense of community, one that cares for one another. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray, amen. I wanted to start with this text because it gives us a little bit of a framework to begin this uh, conversation about becoming a caring community. You see, the first thing that this lawyer comes up, and he's an expert in the law, and he's trying to just see if Jesus is who he really says he is because Jesus associates with some pretty intense people. And he's saying, okay, let, let, me, let me just test your knowledge and see what you know, see what you don't know. And the first thing he mentions is what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he goes on to say, well, who is my neighbor? You see, these are actually two questions that haunt the hearts of many in our society. The issue of eternal life and the issue of what does it mean to be in an authentic relationship with friends and family? How do we create that in a culture of absence and isolation? How do, how, what does this even mean to do something like this? And we need to understand that this idea of eternal life, when we think of it in, in, here in America, we think of just eternal life, long life. But for the first century Jew and for Jesus, and I think for us today, we need to think about it along the lines of what it means to have eternal life, is it's more about a quantity of life, or not, sorry, it's more about a quality of life, not a quantity of life. It's more about a quality, not a quantity. For these folks in this this text, it would be more about wholeness, rightness with God, and a sense of flourishing. God's intended design for his creation, to be, for people to be in a relationship with him and to be in a relationship with one another. That's what leads to flourishing. That's what leads to wholeness, being right with God, right with others. And it's interesting because that these are questions that our society is asking right now. You see, in the 1950s and 60s, there was a theory put forth by sociologists called the secularization theory. The secularization theory. And basically what this theory said was that the more modern we become, the more technologically advanced, scientifically aware, intellectually, um, informationally informed that we become. And the more globalized we become, the more interconnected we become as a world through commerce, trade, immigration. The more these things happen, the less we will need spirituality. And even some Christian sociologists said, yeah, that's probably how it's gonna go. We're not happy about it, but that's how it's gonna go. Well, the problem is, is that backfired. And today people are far more spiritual than ever before. Yes, there is a rise in non-religious belief frameworks, but there's also more of a rise in spirituality, not Christianity, but spirituality, an interest in something. And what that tells us is that people are realizing that they're needing something beyond themselves to find this sense of wholeness. So they're trying to tap into this, this divine realm of what it means to have this relationship with God or gods, or what does that mean? But their hearts are moving towards this transcendent idea of God at a remarkable rate. People are far more open to spiritual conversations. But the culture's response is this. If you wanna find wholeness, if you wanna find flourishing, we have your answer. We, we see that you're looking for something more. Here's how you do it. You find yourself, you fix yourself, you do it yourself and you express yourself. If you do those things and you do them well, you will find wholeness and flourishing. But that too has backfired because more people today are lost and lonely, depressed and anxious than ever before to the point where sociologists are now saying that we live in a culture of outrage and angst. Do you feel that? This text moves us in the right direction. So let's step into the story and see how the story of Jesus invites us into an alternative narrative. It says Jesus replied to the story, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, left him half dead beside the road. By chance, this is supposed to be like a hopeful thing. By chance, By chance, a priest came along and when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over, looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side, this intentional avoidance. Now, I want to pause right here and I want to ask you, if you were sitting half dead on the side of the road, who is the last person you would call or the last group of people that you may want to come to your aid? If you were awake enough to see them coming, you would say, get away from me. I don't care how sick I am. I don't care how broken I am. You get away from me. Who are those people? That's what this is supposed to feel like. Those people. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If the bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which one of these three would you say is a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. This guy can't even say the word Samaritan because of the hostility that exists between the Jews and Samaritan. He can't even bring himself to say it because that was almost a cultural insult, a cultural slap in the face, a first century your mama joke. Jesus said, yes, go and do the same. Every time I teach this text, it never fails. Someone comes up to me and says, does this mean I have to give all my money to the poor? Does this mean I have to help every homeless person I see? Do I need to volunteer at every shelter? Do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? That's not the point of this text. I think we need to be more led by the spirit in those things. I do. I think we could do more of that, not less. But that's not what this text is about. This text is actually more about the posture of our hearts towards God and the posture of our hearts towards others. And having an identity that informs and forms our actions. It's not about doing something, it's about being somebody. It's about being somebody. And in the life and ministry of Jesus, we can definitely clearly see three things about his lifestyle, about who he was, that we can take away from this text. To create a caring community requires us to be compassionate. Requires us to be proximate and it requires us to be sacrificial. So we're going to explore some of those things. Compassionate, proximate, and sacrificial. You see, the first thing is being compassionate. First thing that says about the Samaritan is that he felt compassion. He felt compassion. Now, this is not just a, oh, I feel bad for you. I'm sorry about that. That's not what this is. In the Greek, it actually means like to have your bowels moved. What? What? You see, in the ancient world, this type of this this phrase had to do with the seed of your thought, emotion, your love, your everything about who you are. That gut feeling that you have—that's what it's actually implying. So, this compassion is not "I feel bad for you." It's a deeply rooted conviction and belief that the brokenness that we see in the world needs to be dealt with. Because I think we all agree that things in the world are not the way they ought to be. We look out at the world, no one, no, one agree, no one disagrees with that. Things are not the way they ought to be. We disagree on how to make them right, but everyone agrees that something is wrong out in the world. But then we also look in the mirror and we still feel that sense that something's just not right. We crave compassion. We crave it but this, this gut-wrenching thing that something ought to be done. Does that describe the global church? That compassion? Do you think so? See, in 2014, a couple of uh, polling agencies got together and they surveyed what people on the outside think of the church. Compassion wasn't even on the list. Within the top three were being critical and judgmental critical and judgmental. That's problematic that we're known for being critical and not compassionate. And typically when I say that, people say, oh, well, the the culture, they just don't want to hear the truth. Yeah, we say that until we're in a spot of brokenness and we crave compassion, right? Oh, we're quick to receive grace, but slow to give it, right? When we have compassion, we see people through the redemptive lens of Jesus. We see their redemptive potential that they have in Christ. We see that God wants them to be whole and wants them to flourish just like he does us. That's where compassion comes from. And compassion is not only for the church. Listen to this third century church father who gave his life for his faith. This is what he says. There's nothing remarkable in cherishing merely our own people with the due attentions of love. Thus, the good should be done to all men, not just the household of faith. He's echoing Jesus' words where Jesus says, cool, you love people who are like you. That's easy. Becoming compassionate. You see, in our chaotic cultural climate, compassion is what's needed, but it's so rare and criticism seems to be on tap. Inside the church and outside the church. We critique people, and I I battle this with myself. You see, when I pass homeless people or people who are down on their luck, it's easy for me to begin to diagnose them at a distance. Well, he's got a pen and paper and he can stand on his own two feet and he can write, why doesn't he get a job? We have that immediate. What does that tell us about ourselves? That the immediate thing we do is to diagnose problems like that at a distance, so something I've been, doing, I've been trying to do over the last couple of years is when I find myself in that position, go talk to somebody who's homeless and say, will you share with me your story over a cup of coffee? I met a homeless man named Miyami last year here in Bozeman who shared with me his story because I, I was feeling critical towards him and I saw him in a coffee shop and I said, Let, let's, let's have a conversation. And then I became compassionate. Do you know why? Because when you're close, it's so much easier to be compassionate than it is critical. Because when you're hearing the story, when you're close with somebody... You can't just say, when you know their story, you're not just like, oh, well, forget you still. Hearing people's stories does something to us. It's easy to critique at a distance. And we do this in our cars as well, right? It's easy to critique other drivers in your car. Just think about the difference between a crowd that you're walking in and a, a car that you're driving in. Completely different. You see, when somebody cuts you off in traffic, you can raise your hands and say, forget you, buddy. Raise your hands again and maybe give them a little American Sign Language. You'd let them know how you feel about the situation. That's easy to do in your car. But if you're walking in a crowd and someone cuts in front of you or bumps you, it's, oh, excuse me, excuse me. (laughs) You're laughing because it's true, right? The reason being is because being compassionate, there's something about being proximate and close that makes a difference. Which moves us into the second point, being proximate, which is applying that compassion by getting close. You see, the two religious people, they easily moved away. They just moved away. It was too messy. They had their reasons for not wanting to get involved. There are some scriptures that say, hey, if you touch them, you're unclean. But we remember that God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So I don't know what they were doing, but they just kept on walking by. Too risky, too messy, don't want to get involved. It could be a trap. Nonetheless, They did not get involved. But it says that going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds, soothed his wounds. And that word wound, that's where we get our word in the English trauma, soothed the trauma that he saw. Well, how did he do it? Well, there's something about proximity when you're coming close to somebody that demands your attention. That's what he did. He showed him, he gave him his full undivided attention. That's part of being proximate is giving our time and attention towards others. It's caring deeply about the trauma that they see. We live in a distracted age where attentiveness is also rare, but attentiveness is what's needed. And this is where we position ourselves before people, even people we disagree with. This is what we're seeing at the table when we sit before people and we say, Look, I wanna wanna hear from you, not just be heard. That makes a difference. That makes a difference. I want to hear you, not just be heard. You see, James 1, it, it talks about it talks about being slow to anger, slow to speak, and quick to listen, but we reverse those in our culture. We want to shout. But we've got to be the countercultural voice that doesn't practice shouting, but rather postures ourselves towards silence and hearing people's stories. Give them our attention. What does that look like? Well, it, it might simply just mean that you invite somebody to dinner. We don't see half dead people on the side of the road all the time. I hope not. So that might mean for us just to invite somebody over for dinner. It might mean getting to know your barista's name wherever you go. Show them your attention. Show them they're valued. That's what being proximate is about. And proximate, I have to spend some time on this, a little bit more time on this one, but proximity moves us towards valuing people more than the positions that they hold valuing positions, valuing people more than the positions that they hold. And that doesn't sit well with a lot of us because we like our positions. And a lot of us define ourselves by certain positions that we hold socially, politically, but that cannot be the case in the church. What defines us as the people of God is the grace of God. Lord Jesus Christ, he reigns on our hearts. He is the object of our allegiance. He's who defines us. So if he's who defines us, we can't define people by the positions that they hold. We define them by the redemptive potential they have as image bearers of God. Everybody deserves the dignity and respect. You see, this, uh, this Samaritan, he had every reason not to help this guy based on the positions that they held. You see, for the Jewish people, the, the Samaritans were seen as ceremonially unclean, nationally illegitimate, theologically apostates, and religiously liberal. That was the Samaritan for you. He had every reason not to get involved, but he stepped into the mess anyway. He wanted to bridge the relational gap before he began to change other people's positions. That's an important point. Not starting with, hey, change your position before you join us. Join us and allow the Spirit of God to work. Allowing the Spirit of God to to simply work. You see, uh, Washington law professor John Anatsu in his book, Confident Pluralism, he says this, even in the midst of our deepest differences, we might share enough common ground to maintain the possibility of relationship across those differences. We can bridge the relational distance even when we cannot bridge the ideological distance. But it requires being proximate. And it's important to know that when you're having conversations with people you disagree with, it's important to know that we don't know Everything. And a lot of what we think we do know is distorted or possibly wrong. Possibly. So we've got to position ourselves in a place where we're valuing people more than their positions or our positions. Give them a place of attentiveness. And this does not mean having all the answers. Quite the opposite. You see, oftentimes when we try to communicate with people, we want to solve the problem. We want to have all the answers. But all I'm telling you to do is just simply be present. Don't feel like we have to explain away everything. Don't try to answer the difficulties of people's trauma all the time. In fact, when I was 13 years old, my brother was killed in a car accident. And I did not grow up in a church home so I didn't have much of a framework for Christianity, but it was Christians trying to solve the problem, the theological problems of my brother's death that removed my interest in the church. Them saying things like, "Oh, God needed another angel." That's not even theologically accurate. We try to solve all the people's, we just need to be attentive. Just be present. You see, Job's friends had it right until, they, until he opened his mouth, until they opened their mouths, right? They just sat with him and it was the minute they began to speak where things didn't work out. So you don't have to have all the answers, just be present. And what you'll find out is through this presence, people's positions, maybe even your own, some will be reinforced, but some will change. It's a process. The process of becoming like Jesus is a a lifelong process. That's why Jesus says it's called being born again. We have to learn to think, talk, speak, act differently all over again. It's entering into a new lifestyle, but we've gotta be patient and we've gotta be gracious. And in the context of becoming a caring community, I'm telling you that we're learning this at the table, that presence and proximity beats picket signs every single time. It just simply does not saying there's not ever a time where a picket sign's not necessary, but I'm saying if you're wanting to bridge the relational gaps, start with a personal relationship, not with a picket sign. Not with a picket sign. We have a couple of people um, at the table. We had a couple that came uh, several months ago and they've been coming ever since, but they came twice and after twice, I took them out to lunch and said, what do you think? And, and they said, well, we had a disagreement at our table during the conversations. I was like, dang it. And they said, and it was awesome. They said, we forgot what it felt like to be able to disagree and have a conversation like adults. We have another person who has been coming to the table, still comes to the table, but when they first stepped in, they said, I gotta be honest, I'm only saying this because I feel comfortable in this relational space. I don't buy that Jesus is the only way. And to see the table engage that was beautiful. Beautiful. This person asked questions, they asked questions, they reaffirmed, hey, we believe that Jesus is Lord, but we're willing to walk with you as you explore this and figure it out. That was wonderful. This is where we get close to people and rather than than just feeling the burden, we bear the burden. You see, Christ died for his enemies. Should we not be willing to at least dine with ours? And most people that we think are enemies are not just our enemies, we just have ideological differences. It's bridged that relational gap. And this leads us to the last point, being sacrificial. This is where we practice presence really is being sacrificial. You see, the irony is, is that the temple priest and the Levite, they were fine making the spiritual sacrifices in the safety of the temple, the four walls. They were fine with worshiping. They were fine with making the sacrifices spiritually, but they were not okay with making the sacrifices relationally and practically to help somebody. You see, the Samaritan, however, he gave his time, he gave his ride, he gave his resources, and he gave his word. Have you ever noticed in the story that the Samaritan says, when I come back, I'm coming to check on this. He gave his word. Guys, being in a community is so important. And it's often through a self-sacrificial community where people get saved. That's the hallmark of Jesus. He came to serve and to save. And it is through his self-sacrificial service that we recognize that and we are saved for eternal life. This wholeness, this rightness with God and rightness with others can begin because he self-sacrificially served us. He is the one we move after, we become like. I wanna read to you Colossians 3, 10 through 17. If you have your Bibles, you can go there. But he he basically interprets the story better than I can, the apostle Paul. He says this, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn, we don't know everything, as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In, new, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you were Jew or Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters. He lives in us on all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender hearted mercy. That word is actually compassion there. Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults. He presupposes that there's going to be conflict and disagreement. Make room for it. Above all, clothe yourself with love which binds us all together in perfect harmony and let let the peace that comes from Christ rule your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Does anything in this text say that you have to always agree? No. Does anything in this text say that you have to actually change your positions to conform well, if it moves you in the direction of love, then yes, it requires us to be compassionate, self-sacrificial. But on all, not on all positions. You see, being close doesn't mean that you're gonna conform your ideas. It just means that you're committed to others and willing to walk around and walk with them. You see, this is a beautiful image because it, show, it reveals the importance of a caring community. You see being in a caring community it does cost it costs our pride selfishness and sometimes our preferences I've got my preferences at the table I I teach at the table and I don't get my way all the time I'm like what are you kidding me I have to give up some of my personal preferences We have to be sacrificial in that way but it costs more to not be in a caring community it costs us wholeness and flourishing. You see, I've been doing ministry for about 10 years and there's a common thread when I'm meeting with broken people who are, who are at the bottom, nine times out of 10, they are not involved in a caring community. They're doing it in isolation. And solo spirituality is a foreign concept in scripture. Foreign. It does not exist. People say, I can worship in my home. Do you? You can, You should. But the people of God, there's something rich about it where even the author of Hebrews says, let's not give up on that. Think about it. The first question God asks in the Bible is, where are you? Adam and Eve had distanced themselves from God. Presence was disrupted. In the wilderness, Jesus was in isolation. That's where he was faced with his deepest and darkest most temptations. John the Baptist in prison. That's where, in isolation, behind bars is where he began to ask, is Jesus really who he says he is? Paul writing to a church that he couldn't be at. He was in jail too. He says, It it conflicts my soul. I have agony in my soul because I can't be with you. Isolation is dangerous, and we need community. We need to be in a caring community, which involves compassion, proximity, and sacrificial lifestyle living. But this does more than just answer that. This tells us who Jesus actually is. You see, Jesus is the true neighbor. Out of his compassion, he became proximate. John 1 14 says, The word became flesh, he came close. And he went beyond just tolerating us. It says, While we were still enemies, he died for us in Romans 5 10 11. He died for us, even though we were his enemies. He didn't just tolerate us. Thank God, God did not just stop at tolerance but went beyond to a place where he was willing to bear our burden, our sin on the cross. And he lived self-sacrificially so that that longing in our heart, that hauntedness in our heart could be connected to the Lord who established it. So what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you find your fullness in him. Colossians 2, nine and 10 says that he is the fullness of God and in him you are complete. Find your fullness in Christ and then live like Him. If you would just take a moment and set your things aside. I want you to spend some time with the Lord just for a moment. Figure out who you identify with in the text. For some of us, this may mean evaluating our schedules. For some of us, this might mean repenting for not caring. For some of us, it might mean inviting people for dinner. I don't know. The application is for you and the Holy Spirit to work out. So take just a moment, spend some time with the Holy Spirit and ask him to reveal to you what you need to know about this. Father, we give thanks to you that you have stepped into the mess, that you have stepped into the brokenness, that you have seen us laying half dead in the side of the road. And you have given us life. You have sustained and soothed us. Help us find our wholeness and completeness first in you. And then help us live like your son, Jesus, by being compassionate, by being proximate, and by being sacrificial. We thank you for our time together. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can
0: give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.